0: and as you are able for today's new testament lesson from the book of acts chapter 17 verses 16 to 34 while paul was waiting for them in athens he was deeply distressed to see the city to see that the city was full of idols so he argued in the synagogue with the jews and the devout persons and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Aragopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way, for as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness, by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them. But some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
1: You may be seated. Thank you, Jeff, for reading our lesson this morning. And to all of you who are with us, uh, we're grateful that you're here. And as Casey mentioned, we're praying for those for their safe return as they come back from holiday from a, a time apart. Uh, we're grateful that you've had that. And all of those of you online, it is always a great privilege to be with you. And it's an honor uh, to share the Word of God with you all today. Uh, we have some some very good friends who are with us today. Jeff Pointer uh, and Missy and Riley are here. Jeff Pointer uh, was the best Uh, employment decision I ever made at Lawrenceville First Matters Church. He's the business administrator there. Uh, Missy is a teacher, and Riley is a missionary, uh, an engineer missionary, uh, which uh, she'll be in places all over the world during her lifetime. And Jeff, Missy, Riley, What a joy it is to see you all and to be with you today. Mason, uh, thank you for being here. Mason's lost a little bit of his voice because he was in Texas last week for a football game between Alabama and Texas A&M. And so if you've noticed, he's a little raspy. He is an A&M guy, and that's why. That was a big day for him. Uh, James, thank you for singing uh, what I think is one of our new favorite songs, He Will Hold Me Fast. Uh, And as uh, Casey, as you were mentioning Carl Wood and Lydia Kingsborough, I was thinking while we were reading this text that I had the privilege of going with Paul and Lydia Kingsborough uh, a few years ago to the Mediterranean as we followed the mission of Paul. We traveled uh, the footsteps of Paul, and we were actually at the Areopagus. We were there at the real Parthenon, not the one on West End, but we were at the Acropolis in Athens with Paul and Lydia. And I'll tell you, when you take a trip uh, to the Mediterranean with a guy named Paul and a woman named Lydia, you really are walking in the footsteps of the book of Acts. And so we remember those families especially uh, today in their great loss and in heaven's great gain. Well, it's hard to believe we've come to the end of this series that we started on Sunday, August the 8th, on the book of Acts called Empowered. And over the last two and a half months, we have trekked through Dr. Luke's depiction of the early church from from her birth at Pentecost in Jerusalem to her extended witness in Judea, in Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And as we've said all along, the lead character in the book of Acts is not the apostles, it's not the elders, the lead character is the Holy Spirit. That is the inner presence of the risen Christ, which enables us, as we've said the last 10 weeks, to stick together, to bear witness, to heal and to restore, to endure opposition, to adapt to a changing landscape, to face Persecution to change directions, and that was Acts 9, Paul, to cross cultural boundaries, Acts 10 and 11, to disciple others, that's Acts 13, and then last week, to discern essentials, and that's Acts 15. This morning, we come to the 11th and final message in the series, and I want us to conclude by focusing on how the Holy Spirit empowers us to contextualize our faith, to contextualize our witness. That's what Acts 17 is. Acts 17 is an absolute clinic in what I call missional contextualization. That is the process of relating the teaching to a specific setting contextualization, contextualization. That's what a good preacher, that's what a good teacher does. A good teacher is able not only to exegete the scripture, to interpret the scripture, but also to interpret the culture of its hearers. Now, it's interesting to me that both the form and substance of Paul's preaching in Athens is specifically aimed at persuading educated and philosophically-minded Greek people to believe in Jesus. He's contextualizing in a way that is specific to his audience. At the same time, Paul refuses to compromise the non-negotiable apostolic message, particularly... The part about resurrection which if you know greek thought that is completely anathema offensive to the athenian worldview they do not believe in the resurrection of the dead only the immortality of the soul and so i think if you look closely at this text it's really a guide in the task of translating or incarnating the gospel in a very diverse or pluralistic setting and we do that we contextualize not so that we can become like the world, but so that the gospel can be understood by the world. I think you can make a case for the fact that the incarnation itself, God coming into human flesh is an example of contextualization. God became like us so that we might become like God. God adopted our culture and then challenged us with truth. And that's the task of missional discipleship. And by the way, that's the role of the Holy Spirit. Whenever Paul would enter a new town, he would start out at the synagogue. He would always begin at the synagogue, why? Because he had connections there. He would find a sense of community. He would find room and board, hospitality. And the synagogue would become his base of operations for extending the gospel. And so it is in Athens in this text. Paul came to Athens for refuge during the second mission of his three missions that the book of Acts explains. He'd been run out of Thessalonica. He came to Berea where he found a welcome until the mob from Thessalonica caught up with him in Berea. Now, I've noticed that the gospel generally generates two kinds of response among us, either repentance or resistance. We either respond in repentance or we respond with a sense of resistance. We run away from it. Apparently, things had gotten so heated during Paul's mission that his supporters felt it best to seclude him until things calmed down. And so they sent him to Athens. Eventually, he would go to Corinth. But even in Athens, he found ample opportunity to get himself into hot water now, I don't have to tell you because you know, you know from your own schooling that Athens was considered the intellectual capital of the world. It was home to Pericles, to Demosthenes, to Socrates, and the rest of these, Plato, Aristotle, Epicureans, and Stoics. Epicureans' chief pursuit in life was pleasure. They lived by the mantra, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we shall die. And the Stoics' chief pursuit was indifference, apathy. They would have been the type who lived by the mantra, grin and bear it. And so surrounded in this diverse polytheistic culture, the text begins by noting that while Paul was in Athens, he was deeply distressed. It's an interesting Greek word for distress, paroxino, which is really a medical term for a seizure. It's Dr. Luke's medical term term for an epileptic fit. What it means in this context is Paul is vexed. Paul is in Athens and he is irritated. He's annoyed. One translation, I love this word, says he's irked. Why? Because the city was a veritable forest of idols. Nothing irks a Jewish Christian any more than idolatry. That is a violation of the jewish confession of faith the shema which says the lord our god is one as christians we are theologically speaking a monotheistic people in other words we don't believe in many gods but one god and athens is a polytheistic city and so athens itself is a violation of the first two commandments. No other gods before me, no graven images. And so it's no wonder that the Apostle Paul is irked, he's distressed. In fact, it was often said in those days that in Athens, it's easier to find a god than it is to find a person. At every corner, every turn, there were shrines, there were idols, there were temples to Zeus, Athena, Aris, Mars, Jupiter, Venus, Mercury, Bacchus, Neptune, Diana, you name it. The whole Greek pantheon was there in Athens. Now, we still have our idols today. They may not have personal names attached, but we have our idols today. An idol is simply a God Substitute or best definition is this, idolatry is making a good thing the ultimate thing. And that can be anything. Whatever it is that takes first place in my life, it can be money, it can be sex, it can be power, it can be food, alcohol, drugs, work, it can be sports, it can be spouse, it can even be children. It can be possessions, even ideologies, parties, caucuses, idolatry. It was G.K. Chesterton, the British philosopher, who said, idolatry happens when you worship what you should use and you use what you should worship. It was John Calvin, the great reformer, who said the human mind is a perpetual factory of idols. And Paul was irked by the culture. But here's what I love about Paul. In spite of the the culture that he was in, he didn't hide in the synagogue. He didn't hide behind the church. He engaged the marketplace, or as we would call it today, the agora. That word means open space. The Agora, or the Areopagus, was the hub. It was the gathering place in Greek city-states to academicians, teachers, philosophers, leaders, where they would gather to discuss the latest news, to talk about CNN and Fox, to hear and exchange ideas, to debate conflicting views. And Paul didn't wait for people to come to him. He went to where they lived. And that's exactly what Jesus did. As far as I can tell, in the ministry of Jesus, he never called a disciple in the synagogue. He did it by the seaside and at the tax office. He went to where people were and didn't wait for them to come to him. That's contextualization. And though Paul was irked and distressed by these Athenians, I want you to listen to how he addresses them. He doesn't begin by putting them down. He doesn't condescend to them he doesn't say, hey, you bunch of heathens. He doesn't alienate them. He conciliates them. Listen to what he says. Men of Athens, I see that you all are extremely religious in every way. That's an implicit affirmation. Though it's interesting to me to note That the Greek word for religious can mean pious, but it can also mean superstitious. So I'm not sure that Paul is giving an affirmation or maybe a subtle critique to this culture. But he doesn't begin with alienation. He says, you guys are really spiritual. He says something like this. "I, I thought I was pious, but you people take the cake. What he's doing is... He's not beginning in an adversarial way with the culture. He's not dissing their city. He's not knocking their culture. He's contextualizing. Because Paul knows that even their impulse to worship is right, even if the object of their worship is wrong. And so he's not beginning in a polemical way. He's beginning beginning with a small affirmation You all are really religious. I can see it in your shrines and temples, but I've noticed among all these objects of worship, Paul says you have one altar with a very curious inscription. It says to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. I got a call this week from, from my daughter Haley who was on her way to work and she called me and she said, Dad, I was driving through a neighborhood and I saw all of these uh, in, in one yard. It was decorations for Halloween, Halloween shrines and tombstones and one tombstone I thought you would enjoy said, here lies an atheist all dressed up with no place to go. It was worth the call. To the unknown God. This is where Paul begins. In a stroke of genius enabled by the Holy Spirit, Paul is actually connecting with these intellectuals at the point of their acknowledgement of their own ignorance. What therefore you worship as unknown, this is what I want to talk to you about. And then Paul, starting with creation, preaches the gospel. He begins by pointing to nature, to natural law. In fact, Eugene Peterson, in his translation of this passage, says it like this. Paul speaking says, the God who made the world and everything in it doesn't live in custom-made shrines, nor does he need the human race to run his errands for him as if he couldn't take care of himself. No, he makes the creatures the creatures don't make him. And starting from scratch, God made the entire human race and made the earth hospitable and plenty of time and space where we could seek after God and not just grope around in the dark, but actually find him. For God does not play hide and seek with us. He's not remote. He's very near. At that point in the message, watch what Paul does. He quotes their poets. He knows their musicians. In him, we live and move and have our being. That's Epimenides. He's been listening to their radio station. Paul knows the culture. He's contextualizing. In fact, he does it twice. He then quotes Aretus, one of the poets who says, we are God's offspring. Paul has studied the context. Not because it's cool, but because he's trying to build a bridge between the unknown and the known. And what's interesting at this point in this foreign culture is Paul doesn't quote Scripture. You know why? Because the Athenians are not bound to the Torah. They don't know the Torah. They don't care about it. So Paul quotes their poets and philosophers and then connects them to scriptural truth. I think you can come to the knowledge of God through nature. I think you could go outside today. I think you could walk at Radnor today, and you would know beyond the shadow of a doubt that someone made all that is. I believe that's true, that knowledge of God comes through nature. You can understand the Creator through the creation. But to actually know the heart of God, to know the nature of God, we need revelation. We need truth revealed in a person. And at this point, after talking about creation and poetry, Paul points them to the God-man of Nazareth, who is seeking us who demands our repentance, who will judge all the earth, who was crucified and risen, Paul says, this is the unknown one who makes God known. Now, it's an interesting response in Athens. When they hear the bit about resurrection, some of them just turned him off. Because, as I said, they believed in the immortality of the soul, but they could not possibly believe in the resurrection of the body. And some just checked out. And Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians 1 that Christ crucified and risen is a stumbling block to the Jews and it's foolishness to the Greeks. But to those of us who are being saved, it's the wisdom of God. Some of those in the audience that day demonized, criticized Paul. They said he is a proclaimer of foreign divinities. Now, ironically, they said the same thing of Socrates four centuries earlier before they made him drink the hemlock. Just because we don't understand it doesn't mean it's not true Paul is a Christian, Socrates, who knows the wisdom of God because God has revealed God's self to him on a Damascus road and he cannot keep his witness silent. And so he's building a bridge. He's contextualizing. It was Chuck Swindoll who said people who inspire others are those who see invisible bridges at the end of dead-end streets. People who inspire others are those who see invisible bridges at the end of a dead-end street. Now, it's interesting to me that there was no Greek Pentecost on that day. There weren't 3,000 who joined like in Acts 2. There were only two who responded, just two. In fact, Luke remembers their names. Jeff, you called him Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris. When they heard the gospel, something clicked within them. They believed, and it's amazing what God can do through a willing witness, even when he's irked. Let me give you an example of this, and then I'm finished. I had a funeral last Saturday. Casey mentioned we've had a number of, of homegoings in our community, a number of deaths, and we're remembering them by name each week. I had a funeral last Saturday for one of our men, and at the service, the elder son spoke. There were two adult sons, and the elder son spoke. It was a difficult task. He was pretty emotional, as you can imagine, but he had something that he needed to say, and he said it. He said, my dad was a PK, a preacher's kid, or we would call him a T.O., a theological offspring, who was raised by a Cumberland Presbyterian pastor back in the day. This would have been back in the 40s. Their grandfather started Sunday school classes all over the upper Cumberland plateau, he said, in 11 different counties during his ministry. He said, my dad, though he was raised in the church, though he was a PK, my father didn't have an easy time but he never forgot his faith. He'd been through all of this heart uh, problem, congestive heart failure. He had a hard time, but he never lost his faith. But the son said, at one point in my life, I was having a hard time. Life hadn't worked out for me like I'd hoped, and I was struggling with my faith. He said, it was kind of like I was groping in the darkness, and I remember one night my father taking me aside and he said son sometimes when you're unsure of your faith you should know that just to feel your need of God is a sign of God's grace at work in you just to feel your need is a sign that God is near and through his tears he said my father was my bridge to God. I thought of a line from an old hymn. I think it's in our hymn book. The hymn is, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. But it's the last line that I thought of while that young man was speaking. It says this, Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. And then the chorus, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. I was seated there at that funeral thinking, even when I'm groping in darkness, when we feel the need... He isn't far. He's closer than a brother. And the unknown becomes known. There is no context in your life that the power of the Holy Spirit cannot bridge. And the Spirit of God wants you to be a conduit, wants me to be a bridge even when I'm irked with the culture so that the unknown may become known through you and according to the book of Acts that is the definition of a disciple and the spirit of God will empower you to do it may it be so in us in Jesus name